This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. A few weeks back, we aired an interview with Nick DeCastro, founder and CEO of Land Trust, a platform through which private landowners can sell access to their property for a variety of uses. To call it Airbnb for private lands is a bit of an oversimplification, but it's a useful analogy. Following that episode, we got many comments and questions from you, our listeners. A lot of the comments asked about the potential conflict in the hunting space between the land trust model and Montana's block management program. I was struck by the considered and respectful tone of all of these comments. So it's in that spirit that we've invited Nick back on the show to address this issue and a few others in a brief follow-up conversation. So Nick, thanks for coming back on the show. Really appreciate you having me back on, Justin. So we got a lot of listener comments about our first conversation Many folks interested in learning more about land trust and grateful for finding out about your company in general. And many folks concerned about the potential conflict with the block management program. And thanks for coming back to, to talk about all of these Absolutely. things. Absolutely. So first off, have, have you participated in, in block management? Have you hunted that way? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have. I think I mentioned the last one we did together. I moved here at the end of 2016 to, to Bozeman. And so... Certainly, I've hunted quite a bit of block uh, over the years since I've lived here. Last year, I hunted three days all of last season because, as we were just talking about before hopping on, I have three young children in the yes. company, and you know, not a lot of hunting gets done. But one of those days was a uh, antelope doe, and I ended up uh, tagging out on a on a block management property. And what's your what has been your experience in that system as a hunter? It's always interesting to look at like, what is the design? What What is it designed to do? Yeah. So block is designed to increase access to private lands, um, you know, unpaid by the user per se, but it is paid. Obviously it's uh, paid access to the landowner. Um, it's just being paid by non-resident hunting fees and whatnot, but it's to increase access to, to hunters on private land. And so I think it does that very well. We certainly have block management, properties around Bozeman that get an immense amount of traffic. Uh, and, you know, that's never great. I don't think for the landowner necessarily or for the the sportsman, you'll see like a few of these places will do thousands of hunter days in the season, which is a lot. But again, I've had some really fantastic opportunities on block over the years. Um, so it's, you know, it, it depends, I guess. And how would you differentiate your platform from, from block management? So let's start with the foundation. I personally believe and land trust as a company believes in, in, in property rights. And so we believe landowners should be able to make decisions about their property. Um, it's kind of, a, I don't know, a cornerstone of the American dream. Mm-hmm. And so I look at block management as an option, an opportunity. So landowners, when it comes to recreation access to their land, can basically take a, a or make a handful of decisions. They can say, there is no recreation access to my land for anyone besides myself and my family, which that's great. Um, they, they work hard and they pay for that land. That's their decision. They could say it's open, free public access to everybody. That's great. Again, it's their decision. Or they can say, okay, well, maybe we'll lease it to an outfitter or to an individual. Or they can choose a state uh, program like block management 
other states have similar style programs. Um, you know, they have different names where the state is essentially paying that landowner per hunter day. Um, so that's how block works here. I think it's $13 a day uh, per hunter day and they cap what the earnings are. Yeah. And so that's a way, and they have two types of block as I'm sure most of your listeners know, or they could look at an option like land trust. To me, we have to celebrate any of those options when landowners choose them because it's them exercising their property rights. Uh, so, you know, we don't begrudge any landowners, of course, that, um, you know, choose to go with block management uh, or other programs like that. Because at the end of the day, it is their it is their right to exercise and, you know, they should do what they see fit to be best for their family, their operation. And so do you view current participants in the block management program as prospective customers? Well, I mean, I guess if you zoom out to a macro level, they're private landowners who are monetizing hunting access and recreation access on their land. So, you know, from that perspective, sure. However, I would like to say we don't spend time, money, effort courting uh, landowners that are in block management. Okay. So if you think about this from a business perspective, and it's something that's, you know, some people who don't like what land trust is or, or, or kind of the business model, they have thrown accusations at us that like we're going out and try to convert all the block management landowners onto land trust. That's just not true. First of all, second of all, like if you think about it from a business perspective, you know, if you gave me the opportunity to speak to a landowner who is not currently enrolled in any program, they don't currently do any kind of recreation access stuff on their property or one that has signed a year or multi-year agreement with the government, like I want to talk to the person who is unencumbered by existing agreements and all that, right? It's just a business. That's a business decision. Okay. Because they could say yes today. Whereas if we have spent our time speaking to landowners who are involved in block management, you know, even if they want to do something, they're under contract essentially. So even if they wanted to say yes today, they can't. And, you know, but as you probably can see, just from a business pers- uh, perspective, it was, it's much less efficient for us if we were to spend time courting or pursuing landowners who are currently in block management. There are a lot of landowners out there. By the way, we operate in 40 states. So there's plenty of landowners out there who are not currently in, you know, state programs that we talk to all the time. And it's just from a business perspective, it, it pays more dividends there. And we should point out that the, the there's been in Montana a decline in acreage in the block management system that and that trend predates the existence of land trust. I think that trend has been in oh, yeah. decline since 2011. Yep, I was uh, I was just uh, out of college then, so yeah, that we we didn't start land trust till actually we just had our four year birthday yesterday, October second. Well, congratulations on that milestone. It's a real Thank thing. Thank you. Yeah. How do you think about privatization in general? I mean, one thing that you know could be a we talked in our first conversation about potential negative externalities or unintended consequences, and you know, you could argue that in the long run, this creates an incentive to privatize public lands. Um, you have to connect a lot of dots to see that kind of happening. But um, how do you think about that issue in general? Yeah, you would have to connect a lot of dots for that one. I think privatizing public land, that would, I mean, that's a state and and or federal level thing. I, I have a hard time believing that land trust could ever be successful enough in any wildest imagination to have land transfers of public land into private. That seems 
very far-fetched uh, and would never be a goal of ours, by the way. Okay. Uh, we like public lands. Again, I want to reiterate, like, we love public lands. Everyone at the company is on them and recreates on them. Like, they're great. We're a private lands company, so we focus on the private side of the of the market, which is seventy mm-hmm. percent of the lower forty-eight. And we believe if you want to really enhance and grow recreation access, whether it be hunting, fishing, and other outdoor activities, like seventy percent of that of the, the lower forty-eight being private, we, let's let's work on that problem. The public lands are awesome, and they have a lot of people working on them, you know, working on access and all that kind of stuff, which is fantastic. Um, you know, privatization is a word that is thrown out a lot when uh, for people who maybe don't understand or like what we do. So we are a private lands company, so it's hard to privatize private land. Uh, it's already private. And, you know, the other, uh, I would say the other thing that we hear is, you know, public trust doctrine around wildlife. So when you specifically talk about hunting, right, again, People use land trust to do other stuff. They go ride horses on ranches and, you know, forage and shed hunt and mm-hmm. fish and camp and all that stuff. Hunting is definitely a big piece of it. That wildlife, you, when you book some, when you book a hunt on land trust, you're literally booking access to a property to do an activity. So in before land trust, it used to be called a trespass. So Renee, your hunter's out there. You knock on a land on your store and say, hey, can I? I go out and hunt those deer or those pheasants or those elk or whatever. And they say, yeah, you know, it's a hundred bucks a gun. And that's how these transactions used to happen. You know, of course that lander could say, sure, go, go have at it. It's free. Um, they have that opportunity, but you know, they're not selling you that, that individual animal. They're not selling you wildlife. They're selling you access to the place to go out and pursue an activity. Maybe you're lucky, maybe you're not. And you, you end up you know, taking an animal, but you know, on those grounds, privatizing public wildlife, I think you'd have to get into the area of a landowner essentially fencing in wildlife. Uh, so, you know, if I, if I heard elk came on a, on a big ranch and then they built a 20-foot fence behind him, like, that would be privatizing it. But, um, you know, charging people access to their ranch to pursue those elk that, by the way, hop the fence when they receive pressure and go back onto public land or someone else's property, that's just, you know, basically paying for an activity. And I suppose it is complicated how you know, the public owns the wildlife. That's right. Yet the you know the the land is the the ownership of the land is a distinct thing. And then there's some arguments that management of public lands has led to a lot of the wildlife kind of moving toward private land. Part of that's just geographic. Like the public land tends to be in the high country and the private yep. land tends to be in the low country. So you, there's lots of reasons for that, that, that exist outside of necessarily um, human hand waving. Well, I think it's also important, Justin, to, to note here too, you know, we predominantly work with production agriculture landowners. So farmers and ranchers. Right. And, uh, you know, a rancher is a grass farmer. They, they convert grass into protein via cows. And so it's also expensive. Like private landowners um, feed a lot of wildlife. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and and that's, that's explicit cost. It's not like theoretical cost. Um, so it's funny, you know, you know, the hunting community, some, some parts of the hunting community look at a herd of elk on a, on a, on a piece of ground, private ground, and they're, you know, jealous or begrudging of it. And I promise you that that landowner, like if, it, if they're an owner operator and they grow cattle for a living, they're not necessarily thinking about it the same way. Yeah. They're eating, 
they're eating their forage that's for their cattle. They're breaking their fences. So there's an explicit cost to supporting wildlife. And, you know, I think we have it on our site, but uh, I don't know if I mentioned it last time. There's a great Aldo Leopold quote, um, one of the, you know, fathers of conservation, um, but it says conservation will ultimately boil down to rewarding the private landowner who conserves the public interest. And I think that is a really important perspective for folks to, especially out here in the West where we have so much public land, we're really blessed with all that. But a lot of these herds, a lot of these animals are sustained by private lands, you know, from overwinter um, and habitat and food and all that kind of stuff. So, and those have real costs. You know, if we can find ways and systems to reward those landowners and instead of making that wildlife on that property just a liability, if we could turn it into an asset in any way, shape, or form, I think that's a good thing. So we talked in our first conversation about one of the main benefits of of land trust for the landowners is is control. It offers you a lot more control over who's coming onto your land, what they're doing, when they're doing it, et cetera. Talk about it from the perspective of the hunter. Um, the hunter gets more control in some ways through your platform. Block management is, you know, provides a cheaper access in general for a lot of hunters. Many low-income Montanans rely on game to feed their families, etc. So, how do you kind of balance those concerns, or are those concerns that, that you even that you even think about in your business? Sure. Yeah. Uh, here's how I. I kind of perceive this access is a spectrum from you know open federal public lands which is kind of anybody anytime for almost anything which is great to no public access you know hey my family owns this land we don't allow any access we just use it ourselves Mm -hmm. and government programs like block will always have a place and i think they they do a really good service and again they are um the whole model is built around access with land trust, you know, people are booking, hunters are booking, you know, trips on land trust for a myriad of reasons. There's a lot of, we see a lot of uh, parents wanting to take kids out and wanting a more controlled, safe experience. Uh, you know, going out into some places uh, during rifle season, it's a little bit uh, sketchy, I guess, if you have your young kids out there. I can tell you why I do it. I do it because I don't get to get out very often. And when I go hunting or fishing or any of this kind of stuff, I'm really just going to be out in nature and be by myself or with the people I'm with. And, you know, pulling up to 20 trucks at the trailhead is just, it kind of changes the whole thing for me. Sure. And, and I just place value on it. It does. I don't need to, like if I'm successful hunting or fishing, like that's awesome. That's a great thing. But even if I just went out and took my, my gun or my bow or my rod for a long walk, I didn't have to necessarily fight with crowds. Like that's a win for me. Indeed. So yeah, that's, I, I look at it from that perspective. Well, Nick, I, I think, you know, that's all the questions I have. I appreciate you being willing to come on and, and answer some of these questions. Sure. Uh, or answer all of them, I should say. Um, before we close though, what, you know, anything else you'd like to make sure is on the record that, that maybe I didn't ask or we didn't discuss? Yeah. yeah let me, can I say something controversial? Yeah, please. Okay. So in the hunting community, we often conflate conservation and access. 
Those are two very different concepts. And in fact, access is often at odds with conservation of habitat and wildlife. You know, let me give you an example. Let's just say there was a block management property near Bozeman that did 4,000 hunter days. Do you think that that's like, did that have a positive effect on the wildlife population in that area and the habitat on that property? Probably not, right? That's a lot of use, uh, a lot of use in a season. And so, you know, there is a balance. We always want to balance access and actual like wildlife and habitat conservation. Some of these places that don't have a lot of access have much healthier uh, habitat and wildlife populations because there isn't 3,000, you know, 100 days a year on right. There's a There's a select view. So I do, I know that's a very, it shouldn't be controversial, it, you know, to me, it makes sense. We, we obviously want to have access and increased access because it gets people outdoors. It gets people in touch with these passions. And that's why public lands are awesome because that's always there. But I do think it's more nuanced than that. And access doesn't equal conservation. So there's going to be a place for, you know, private lands to facilitate uh, wildlife and habitat conservation in a way that's different than public lands can because they can control access. And I think within the hunting space or not, like this is an issue that's going to be more and more challenging to address as more and more people um, move to Montana, as more and more people want to get out into the lands, whether they're private or public, um, you know, and there's some thought of tourism as an extractive industry, and we should be thinking about the extractive effects of tourism. So, yeah, these are big, vexing questions that um, I think all Montanans should be thinking about. Well, shoot. I mean, that's exactly right. This isn't a hunting. Sp- hunting is very, I don't know, it's the world we kind of live in here. And sure. hunting is very visibly extractive because you're killing an animal and you're taking it off the landscape. Um, so it's extractive in that manner. But Yes, I, I, you could point to mountain biking, you could point to hiking, et cetera. Like, do you want to go hike? I mean, like you go to Zion or places like this now and, and they wait in Disneyland long lines. Like, there's four hour lines to hike a trail. Um, do we think that much throughput um, by people on that landscape is is good? Does it is it a good experience? Is it good for the land? Or is some measure of controlled access, would it be better? And, you know, for public lands, it's public lands it's for the government to decide but i do think private has an interesting role to play in increasing access but controlling it in a way that is good for the land as well i think that's right and i think though within that there has to be some some conversation as to whether that control mechanism is the dollar right for sure. if like a pricing yep. if the pricing mechanism is the sole mechanism now as you as you rightfully point out the public land is an existing resource for the public so you know, we, we, we want to make sure we constrain this piece of the conversation to private lands in particular. But sure. I do think that is part of the debate, right? Folks that are able to access land through block management have grown accustomed to being able to, you know, do their thing and walk onto that land without a fee. Absolutely. Um, and some probably view it as public in terms of their experience of it. But there's a lot of space in between. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll leave with la- one last controversial thing to say, maybe. Okay. So uh, I've heard, it's interesting because you have a lot of, we don't want non-residents. There's too much non-resident sure. hunting, let's say specifically, but it's 
the non-resident hunting license fees that's subsidized block primarily. So it's like everything is nuanced, right? So it's just like, hey, those people pay for a lot of the stuff that we get to enjoy. Um, I understand they can add pressure and whatnot, but without them, I mean, they're paying, what, $1,000, $1,200 for a combo tag. Um, so, you know, everything is uh, push and pull. There's a balance. Indeed. That's why it's such a uh, fascinating topic, and I appreciate you coming on and, and talking about it in good faith. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I have a final yeah. question, Nick. How did you all arrive at Land Trust is the name of the company? I've just been asked this question earlier today. Okay. Um, uh, no, it's a good question. Um, so I will say uh, I did not know what conservation easements were before starting this company. Um, so traditional land space trusts. I came at it from a from a brand perspective of, hey, you know, we are a land sharing marketplace. So land is the essential atomic unit of what we do without you know private land we don't exist uh and trust is essential like this whole thing falls apart if we were to lose the trust of our you know either our landowners or the people who use us as on the guest side so trust in the old-fashioned sense of trust so i put those two words together because they're the most important things to the business never intended for it to be conflated with you know traditional land trusts who do conservation easements but here we are well nick thanks so much and uh yeah, hopefully you get more than 300 days this season, but, you know. <laughs> I've gotten a few more so far, but, you know, this year I'll be a little bit better than last year. Okay. Well, happy trails, and, and thanks for talking again. Thanks. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. Ella Hall is our production assistant. VTO Jeff Ament and John Wicks made our music, and Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.